The JavaScript supply chain includes numerous vulnerabilities due to its expansive nature and the long dependency chains. Socket is a new security company that can protect your most critical applications from supply chain attacks. They're taking an entirely new approach to one of the hardest problems in security in a stagnant part of the industry that has historically been obsessed with just reporting on known vulnerabilities. Faras Abukadeje is the founder and CEO of Socket Security, and he joins the show to talk about Socket's approach to detecting and blocking supply chain attacks. We are looking for a salesperson. If you're interested in working in podcast advertising sales, shoot me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Ferris, welcome back to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. You've been on previously, I think just one time, talking about, it was like a streaming video player, basically like a, was it WebTorrent? Is that the name? Yeah, that's right. So you've had a, a long string of different open source projects that you've worked on, and it seems like commercializability has not really been your focus in the past, but now you're actually working on uh, an open source project that does have commercializability. Can you just describe your creative process when it comes to what software projects you pick? <laughs> That's something I don't really understand myself sometimes. Uh, I think, I mean, I generally am attracted to projects that surprise people in some way or make them surprised at what computers can do so you know that's kind of why i did web torrent you know the idea that you could torrent in a browser and have a website do direct peer-to-peer connections is something that i think a lot of people didn't know was possible of course that was enabled by webrtc and that was a pretty new technology when i started web torrent and then you know i i think there's just something kind of amazing about computers and what you can do with them and so whenever i, I see kind of a way to like do something surprising or delightful. I'm I'm attracted to that. It's something that I call it mad science. It's kind of like, <laughs> you know, stuff that people don't think you should be able to do uh, that you can do and you can kind of blow people's minds. Um, so that's, that's usually what I'm attracted to. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's fun to, it's just fun to surprise people. Given your level of creativity and your adventurousness, I'm kind of surprised you haven't focused completely on crypto or web three or whatever you would call it do you have any an aversion there or you just like to focus on stuff that's closer to enterprise or what keeps you from going down that path you know crypto is definitely interesting i was pretty excited about bitcoin when i first heard about it and I don't know what the year was back when the price was like 10 bucks, I think. <laughs> and I read the paper. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was really interesting. I didn't buy any at the time because I was like a student. And uh, <laughs> that's obviously one of my one of my uh, everlasting regrets. But yeah, and then I started working on WebTorrent as a way to learn about peer to peer systems. So I mean, I was really interested in the idea of like a peer to peer network. It's so cool that, you know, the idea that like all the nodes come together to accomplish some task that they couldn't do alone and that you don't need to trust these people they're just random computers out there but you can work together with them to do something like downloading you know content or in the case of bitcoin maintaining a a shared ledger and it was definitely interesting to me i went down the torrent route because i thought BitTorrent was a really interesting protocol and I, i saw the way to connect it to webrtc and it was like this thing that i didn't think anyone else quite saw it like I had worked on this project before where I'd been exposed to WebRTC. And so it just, it seemed like I could put the two together pretty easily and come up with something useful. And so that's kind of why I was attracted to it. And then 
kind of through the mid 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 uh, 2010s, like there, there was all this this like attention that kind of got into this attention that got attracted to crypto and there was the ico craze and that was when you started to see a lot more scammers coming into the space and kind of capitalizing on the hype around crypto and during that time i kind of felt i don't know i, I guess i was a little turned off by all that and i would say i made somewhat of a mistake in terms of writing i kind of wrote off the whole thing somewhat and sort of said, why are people paying all, t- all this attention to this crypto stuff? You were seeing kind of crypto put it jammed into places that didn't make sense. Like people were just hacking, tacking blockchains onto systems that really didn't need blockchains to, to like, you know, just so that they could get the hype of saying that their project was, was tangentially related to blockchains and to, and to crypto. And so, you know, I think that turned off a lot of, not just me, but a lot of like other technologists who were like, why are we, you know, doing buzzword driven development? It doesn't make that much sense. And so I became a little bit of a skeptic at that time. But the thing that I think was kind of a, the mistake was that just because 90% of people working in, in a space are there to, to get rich quick, it doesn't mean that the other 10% aren't doing really good work and actually doing like fundamental computer science research that is actually creating new abstractions and new primitives that you can use to actually do interesting stuff. And so that was still going on during while, while all these scammers were there doing their scamming, right? And so it, it was just like they were drawing up all the attention. And I was there, I was sitting there working on WebTorrent, which is like, has nothing to do with blockchain. And uh, there's this pressure like, well, if I just said that I added a blockchain into the WebTorrent, or if I kind of made a token, maybe, you know, I could capitalize on this. And I just refused to do that. I didn't, I was as a purist, like, no, there's no need for a blockchain here. It actually would make things worse for this particular problem. And yeah, I, I just sort of sat on the sidelines and just let, let that whole thing happen. But yeah, no, I, I definitely, I'm not like a hater or anything like that. I, I just, there was that period where there was just a lot of scamming going on, I guess. And it, it turned off a lot of people and, and myself included. But back in like 2018, I went, I went back to, to get my master's degree. And at Stanford, they had this class called cryptocurrencies and blockchains. And I actually took it and it's taught uh, Dan Bonet and David Mazieris, two really awesome computer science professors, and got me excited again about crypto and about like what you can do with it. And there's just, a, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on. So I know probably a lot of your viewers are in the, in the skeptic camp. And I would say like, if you're, if you feel skeptical about some of the stuff you see, maybe just go look at the actual kind of computer science end of things and the primitives that people are inventing and kind of what you can do with this stuff. It's just cool computer science, honestly. And that, that was kind of what made me excited again about it. So yeah, I kind of went through a journey there, (laughs) started excited, got, got uninterested and then got excited again, if that makes sense. I don't want to go into this, into the space at at this time. I mean, I think the, the stuff I'm working on with socket is, is definitely more interesting right now, Um, but maybe in the future I'll do that. Yes. Well, let's get into that. So you have been developing for the web for a really long time and you know javascript as well as anybody and javascript lends itself to all kinds of security issues and i think that's just endemic in the way the web works and the way javascript works so it's hard to avoid and i think you know when you when i think about a javascript supply chain i think about callback hell in a sense and like dependency trees just think about left pad contaminating so many packages that were downstream from it or situations that were downstream from it so dependency management is so uh, so important in javascript can you describe how you see the javascript supply chain yeah so the javascript community is incredibly creative and 
generative. And part of that comes from the permissionless nature of NPM where anyone can publish a package. And part of that just comes from JavaScript being a language that doesn't come with the batteries included. And so you get all this like really creative and this interesting stuff that the community comes up with. And that's, I think, part, part of the reason why JavaScript is the largest programming community, not to mention, obviously, that it's the only language you can use in web browsers. But, you know, it, it is a, a source of amazing creativity. And there's a ton of stuff out there that you can use. And it's awesome. I mean, it's it's the reason open source and, and particularly the NPM registry is the reason why you can build a, a very complicated app in a very short period of time with a very small team of people in a way that you couldn't do in previous eras. More broadly, like sharing code and abstraction and encapsulation and reusability and all these things are why you know you don't need to be an expert in parsing some random format or in all the different browser differences or in how does the BitTorrent protocol work. You can just call a library function to do that stuff and um, you can get really far with that. And that's you know that's why like 90% of the lines of code in a given application are are coming from open source and and the like last 10% at the top, the kind of icing on the cake comes from, you know, the actual code that's unique to your application. But you really, we're, we're all sitting on the, or standing on the shoulders of giants and relying on all this, this code under the surface that powers everything. I mean, not to mention in JavaScript, but I mean, just think about the, the web servers we're using, right? Like Nginx and Node.js and all this stuff, all this complexities, they are under the hood all the way down to Linux. And our apps are built on top of all of this stuff. So it's it's awesome. Uh, it's it's powerful. But then with it comes this like downside of complexity and also risk. So when you rely on open source code, you're trusting that the maintainer of that code, you know, made sure that the code is safe and secure, does what it says on the box, and that going forward into the future that they haven't lost control of their account, that they picked a good password, that they're keeping track of their credentials and they're not letting other people get access to these packages so that uh, they can be backdoored or have malware added to them or or what have you and so that's that's kind of the downside or the dark side is now we have these these dependency trees that have grown and grown to the point where hello world application in react can be hundreds or sometimes even thousands of dependencies just to get to a hello world on the screen which is ridiculous in a way and you know that's why you get this sort of kind of meme i guess of people uh, making fun of javascript developers forgetting how to code and needing to install a package to do left pad which is like one or two lines of code now i don't think that's entirely fair i obviously think that that these packages exist for a reason and a lot of the people who were complaining about leftpad for instance wrote their own like leftpad implementations and you know wrote them in like comments on on these news articles and on on hacker news and their implementations actually had bugs <laughs> so even something as simple as leftpad is actually kind of uh was was hard for these for for people to get perfectly right in all the different cases anyway just the kind of the kind of bigger picture that i'm seeing is that nowadays it's sort of in 2022 if you look at what the sort of the, the ecosystem we're seeing near weekly attacks against the open source software supply chain, mainly coming from hijacked packages. We're seeing people hijacking packages because maintainers are reusing passwords. We're seeing people get added as maintainers by just emailing people and saying, hey, I'd love to be a maintainer. You're not maintaining this anymore. Can I help you? And then people get access that way. There's also an instance of just this last January, literally less than a month ago, of somebody maintainer sabotaging their own code which is, that was a very shocking incident where, yeah, somebody basically just decided to add basically a kind of a denial of service uh, into their own project with a wild true loop that would just never, it would cause an infinite loop and would print out all these random characters. That was an attack against Colors, JS, and Faker. 
the point is that this is this is a problem that's kind of getting worse over time and it's accelerating it seems like so that's kind of the the, the landscape that i see hopefully that answers your question yeah it does and the vulnerabilities in javascript there's a lot of ways you could catch them i mean one that comes to mind is snick you could just use snick to assess your your repositories you've built socket.dev which is a javascript supply chain management tool what's novel about socket what does it help protect you from in a way that is not done by previous technologies the most important difference is that SNCC and other tools in this category are what we call like a vulnerability scanner. So their primary way they work is they uh, look up what packages you're using and they compare that to a database of known vulnerabilities. And so what is a known vulnerability? It's basically, you know, maintainers make mistakes, introduce security bugs in their packages. Usually, almost always, this is an accident. So the way that something is written might have some security issue and a security researcher discovers this and they report it to the maintainer. And, you know, once it's fixed, then something called a CVE is issued. So a CVE is just a kind of an identifier. It's a number that identifies this particular vulnerability and it goes into a database that's actually maintained by the federal government in the US. It's called the NVD or the National Vulnerability Database. And that's basically what all these these tools are doing is they're just looking at what version of a package are you using in your project and then is that version known to be vulnerable by comparing it to this database that says which versions are vulnerable and then your solution here is if is if something's vulnerable then usually the report will tell you like you can update to a such and such version and then you won't have the vulnerability anymore and so you know these vulnerabilities are it's obviously bad to have these in production and to have these in your code and so you can use a tool like snick to kind of keep up to date and kind of update your, your dependencies. And the thing though, is that th- th- these are kind of noisy and partially this is because t- companies like them have an incentive to kind of uh, inflate the number of, of these vulnerabilities that they find. And so you get a lot of stuff in there that's relatively low impact. My biggest pet peeve is regular expression denial of service is this vulnerability type that, you know, is basically when you have a regular expression, that's uh, slow to run on particular inputs and, when you find one of these, like it, sure, it could be bad to have that in production, but in general, you'll see a lot of these things in development tools like dev dependencies, which which is um, you know something like Webpack or something like Browserify, which is a development tool that's running on source code that you control to basically build your project and a vulnerability which involves you know a bad input causing a regular expression to take a really long, long, long time to run um, isn't going to be triggered by you compiling your own. JavaScript code. It's because it's an input that you control. And so that's just totally noise, right? It's completely pointless to report on that. And so it's a little hard for these tools sometimes to like distinguish like whether something is a real issue or not. And so you end up with like a case where it feels to most people like 90, 95% of the time, they're just updating these things to make the alerts go away. And they're not actually making things meaningfully more secure. There was actually a kind of a, a meme about this in the community recently where the NPM audit command which uses a very similar process. It just looks up in a database to tell you if something has known vulnerabilities was being very, very noisy and, and kind of uh, just kind of spamming everybody with these warnings that really have nothing to do with actually making your app more secure. 
so anyway, that's that's kind of what what the existing tools focus on. And I don't want to disparage them or anything like that because I, I do think you don't want to you don't you generally want to have known vulnerabilities in your code. And you know, it's it's sometimes okay to ship these to production if they're low impact or they're like you know they're just really hard to trigger or they're uh, you don't have time to fix them right now. Like a regular expression denial of service would be totally fine to to kind of address when you have the time to get to it. But I want to contrast known vulnerabilities with with malware because that's completely different. So malware is when a bad guy intentionally introduces bad code into a project or into a, into a package. Uh, and it's almost always introduced by an attacker. Although, like I said, we've seen an example like last month where the maintainer themselves introduced the, the malware. But in general, this is something that is really nasty code that you never would want to ship to production ever. In fact, you never would even want to run it on your own computer because if you do, then you're computer is compromised. So I mean, I'll give you just a very sp- concrete example of malware. So in October and in November of last year in 2021, there were three packages compromised by an attacker. So what happened was this package called, uh, I'll just focus on UA parser JS as the main one, because this package is a user agent parser. So it takes a user agent string from a browser, you know, and it parses it and tells you like what browser you're dealing with here. So it's a really simple kind of idea of what it's supposed to do. It's a pure kind of a pure function. It doesn't, it doesn't do too much stuff, but you know, this, this package is depended upon by a lot of other people. So it has 7 million downloads every week and it is depended on by almost 3 million GitHub repositories. So almost 3 million separate GitHub projects are using this. You know, even stuff like React Native depends on this. So if you're building an, an even a native app for iOS or, or Android, it has a dependency on this UA parser JS project. So it's a really critical package. And what happened was in on October 5th, 2021, there was a post on a notorious Russian hacking forum where someone was offering to sell a NPM account to someone who, uh, you know, whoever wanted to buy it. Uh, so the, the post said, I'm selling a development account for NPM JS for a package that has more than 7 million installations every week and a lot of dependency, dependence are depending on it. Uh, there's no 2FA on the account. Uh, I have the login and the password and you can log in and then change the email address and take over the package. And they were offering it for $20,000. So two weeks after that post, UA Parser JS was three malicious versions of it were published on October 22nd. And if you look at what actually is in those packages, so an ins- I'll tell you what happened is you actually you can crack open the code and look at what exactly it, it did. So the attacker published new versions that added a install script, which is for those who don't know, it's basically a way that you can tell NPM that whenever a package is, in- is installed on, on, on a developer's computer, that a, a special uh, shell command should be run automatically. And, and usually this is used to, to, to compile like a native dependency, some C code that is required for the dependency to work. But it's also the favorite technique by attackers. So so 60% of malware on NPM uses install scripts as a attack mechanism. And so this particular install script would execute and it happened to download a Monero miner which is you know, a cryptocurrency that would basically just start mining this cryptocurrency on your computer for the attacker. And then separately, it also did an additional attack on Windows computers where it would download a DLL file and it would register it on the machine. And then that would steal all the passwords in about 100 different Windows programs, as well as all the passwords in the Windows credential manager. And it would send that off to the attacker's IP address. And so 
this is a crazy thing. I mean, it's like you're, you're just using some open source software and then suddenly you install it one day or you update to a new version one day and then now it's doing all this extra stuff, right? It's it's stealing your passwords and sending them off to the attacker. So that's malware and that's very different than this whole known vulnerability thing. And hopefully that distinction is clear. Like this is something where this wasn't in any database, right? This was like a new version was published and, you know, for, for like, I think for this particular one, it was caught relatively quickly. It was on NPM for, I think, like four or five hours before it was taken down because this was a very noisy attack with a cryptocurrency miner using 100% CPU. You know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty obvious thing. Like, okay, something, why is my computer slow? You know, why, what is using 100% CPU? This was not a very sneaky attack. So that's why it was caught really relatively fast. But during that period of time, during that four or five hours when it was available on NPM, anyone who installed this package or anything that that uses this package, and remember, I'll emphasize it had 7 million downloads per week. So this was a very popular package. Anyone who installed it was uh, completely compromised. And there, what this wasn't in a database. This wasn't in a known vulnerability database because it was new malware, right? So this is kind of the problem with these existing tools and why I felt like we needed we needed a different approach to detect this stuff. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's that's a great outline. I'd like to get a sense for where the scanning should occur. Like, should it happen in continuous delivery processes or just ad hoc security scans? Give me a sense of the usage of Socket. Yeah, yeah. So we think that before any package is installed, you should check to see what Socket knows about it. What Socket does is it's we're watching NPM and eventually we're going to expand to other programming languages, Python and so on and so forth, that um, also have the same problem, but just at a smaller scale because NPM is just all the problems <laughs> come to JavaScript first because of the scale. But yeah, we're scanning every package and we're doing that sort of on our, our end. So we've built a pipeline that can watch NPM publishes in real time and we run a suite of around 70 uh, checks that we've written. You can think of them kind of like lint rules. So we're looking for specific things in the packages. And uh, most of them are based on the actual code of the package. Although some of the the things we look for are actually around the metadata of the package. So if we see like a new maintainer was added recently, that's an interesting data point. Or if we see that the package has a lot of GitHub issues that are never being addressed, then that also kind of factors in a little bit to sort of our, our, our understanding of the quality of the package. But primarily we're looking at the code and we're looking for specific things that the code does. So we know if a package is going to read your files on your file system, or if it's going to run a shell command, or if it's going to talk to the network, um, or if it's going to run eval and evaluate a string as code. We know if a, if a package has obfuscated code. So we can detect that there's a blob of code uh, that has really short variable names. It has a lot of entropy, and it's been added added to the bottom of a file of a random file. Right? That was actually an attack that happened to a package called EventStream, where a big blob of obfuscated code was added to the bottom of one of the files, and that one took people around a week to find. And it was that's actually an interesting story. If we have time, I could I could tell the story of of EventStream and that attack. But the point is basically we're scanning all this stuff and we can find these kind of six signals that indicate that something that this package is doing certain things, right? And we can uh, tag the package with that information. And then what you really want to know is like, okay, we're using a package at our company, let's say, right? And we've been using it for a year. And for that whole year, it's behaved in a certain way, right? It's it's never talked to the network. It's never read files. It's just a function that you call. Maybe it computes something for you, right? And then suddenly there's a new version that comes out today 
And now the package is running a shell script as soon as you install it. And now it's talking to a bunch of servers and it's also, um, you know, reading some files. It's also, let's say it's reading your environment variables too. So it's looking for tokens and your environment variables. Now, by itself, looking at environment variables isn't necessarily a sign of malware. I mean, a lot of good packages, uh, normal packages do that as part of their normal functioning. But what is suspicious here is that this package never did that for years. And then suddenly a new version c- came out that is suddenly doing that. And so it's worth a second look at the very least. So if if someone on your team is trying to update to this new version, or if you're using a bot that tries to update your dependencies for you, I'm as guilty of this as anyone, but usually we have Dependabot installed on our repo and we get these PRs all the time from Dependabot that's trying to update us. And I'm always, I just look at it and I usually just say, okay, the test pass, you know, the change log says it's a bug fix or something. And then I just say, okay, merge, you know, because there's so many of these and you want to kind of stay up to date as much as possible. And so that's a perfect way for a supply chain attack to happen. So what we, what, what Socket can do is it can come into a pull request like that and tell you, hey, this package's behavior has changed significantly in this version. Here's what it now does. And you can look at that and you can then decide if you want to update or if you it's, or if it merits a little bit further investigation. And we'll link you directly to the lines of code where it does the things that we report on. So we'll tell you, it's talking to the network, here's the line where it does. And you can click that and you can then look and see why is it now talking to a server? What exactly is it doing, right? And so then you can make a much more informed decision about whether to take this update. And of course, we could do the same thing with new packages too. So if you're installing a new package, you also would want to know what exactly does this do. And I think of it almost kind of like a smartphone app where when you install a smartphone app, right, it doesn't just get access to your camera and to your contacts and to your microphone right away. It has to ask permission. And so like we think that it should work the same way with dependencies where when you install the dependency, you should be told upfront what behaviors it's going to it's going to use and what things about it are are noteworthy. And then you should decide if you want to continue and proceed. So yeah, that's kind of what we're, how we think about it. So can you give me an example of a vulnerability that Socket might discover on my infrastructure and walk me through how Socket actually is engineered to analyze the supply chain? Like I'd, I'd just like to dive a little bit deeper into the engineering. We, we did a show with SNCC recently, actually, uh, about how they build their uh, dependency data structures, their software supply chain dependency infrastructure. It was pretty interesting. And I'd just love, love to hear, hear about your story and how it compares. Yeah. So the, the biggest thing that we do that is probably different from what they do, although, I mean, I, maybe I should go listen to their episode and, and hear the insights scoop about how they do it. We need to analyze the the contents of every package to figure out its behavior because that's how Socket works is, is you know, we're not, we do look up the CVEs in the database like they do. And, you know, like that's that's pretty, pretty simple thing to do. But beyond that, we actually want to know what the code is doing. And so in order to do that, we actually have to look at the code in every package. And right now we do what we just do static analysis, which means that we don't actually execute the code. We just treat the code that we're analyzing as like an input to our own analysis procedures. And then we can, we, it's, it's like ESLint. You can kind of think of it like it's like a linter. We look at the code and, and we also look at the metadata around the package and we, we analyze it. And then we look for, like I said, about a, a series of 70 issues. You can find the list on our website. If you go to socket.dev in the header, there's a link called issues and you can see exactly what, which things we're looking for there. And we do that for all of the packages on NPM. 
And so the way we've architected it is because that's a lot of packages, there's, there's 1.8 million of them on NPM, not to mention every version of every package. There's something like, I think, close to 10 million versions, if you count every version of every package uh, that are out there. And so that's a lot of code to analyze. So we've actually structured our data processing pipeline so that we can lazily calculate, we can lazily analyze a package when somebody requests it, if, if we need to do that. But what we're doing is we're kind of going and we've pre-processed a bunch of the most popular packages, really every package over a certain popularity threshold. Like I think, I think we're, we're right now we've, uh, we've processed everything that has more than a thousand weekly downloads, which is probably all the things that most people are using. And then beyond that, whenever a new package is published, we also follow the NPM feed. And so we know exactly instantly when a package is published and we can analyze it right away. And then, you know, all this goes into our database basically. And all this information is publicly, so we, we put it all on our website right away. So you can look up any package, just type it into the search box on Socket, and you can see what we found for, for that package. Um, and, uh, and, and, and all that data is just there. At, you know, it's open for anyone to look at and to, and to use. And then kind of the next thing is like, okay, then how do you make the data useful? Because I mean, you can go to Socket before you choose to use a dependency and, and get an idea about like what it is going to do and you know, what red flags you might want to watch out for. But the thing is, like, if, if you're on a team of people, not everyone on the team is going to remember to do that. And so what you really want to do is kind of in the security industry, they call it shift left. It's basically this idea that you want to kind of push as much of this this security work as early into the development process as possible because it's lower cost if you do this kind of stuff earlier than, than if you try to catch it later. And so, um, like, one, one way to do that is to add um, our, our GitHub bot to your organization or to your repo. And if you do that, then we can watch the pull requests for any changes to your package.json file. And whenever a dependency is mo- is added or, or, or a version is modified in that file, we can look up the change and see whether something has changed that is security relevant to you and, and, and notify you about it. So like a, like a concrete example of this would be, uh, there is this package called Angular Calendar. So it's, it's called Angular-Calendar. And it's a calendar widget that just sort of shows a calendar on a web page, like a web component of a calendar. And this package, one version came out suddenly that added a dependency. And now the package actually, when you install it, it runs a shell command, it reads files, it reads your environment variables, and it talks to the network all at install time. This is a real example. And this Angular calendar package, it has like uh, millions of downloads. You know, So if you were using this in your app, and you had socket installed, then you would know before updating to this new version, you would, you would socket would tell you that this package's behavior has, has changed in a significant way. And you'd be able to click, click around and see exactly why is it doing these new things. In this particular case for this package, Angular Calendar, I would say it wasn't, it wasn't outright malicious. It was more, I would say it's more of a gray area why they were doing this. So there's kind of dependency they added uh, called Scarf, which actually has a great, great mission, which is to help maintainers uh, learn about kind of who is using their open source code so that they can kind of find out which companies are using it so they could they could ask for funding or sponsorship, that kind of thing. So this maintainer of Angular Calendar added added Scarf to the project, which means that now it now it's it's giving them this this analytics, this telemetry basically of who is using their their open source project. So I understand the kind of intention behind this, but I think a lot of companies have policies that don't allow this kind of telemetry to be gathered from their from their systems. And so I think this is the kind of thing where you'd want to know in advance that this 
the behavior has changed significantly in this way. And so Socket can help, you know, in this example, Socket would have told you that this package is now doing this thing. It's now gathering analytics about how it's being used. And then you could make an informed decision on your own. Maybe it's fine. Maybe you don't care, but maybe you do care. And so, you know, we can surface that to you. That's how we would intervene in CI. But then also we're, we're interested in making a CLI as well, which we're, we're, we're working on right now. That, that part's not ready yet, but we want to have a CLI um, that lets you actually catch this even earlier. So at the time when you're actually installing the package locally, when you run npm install. So that's something we're working on right now that will be ready soon. When you think about the full functionality suite that you could build on top of the basic vulnerability search, what does that look like? Like, What are the other areas of JavaScript security that you would see yourself getting into? One thing that excites me right now is this idea of reproducible builds. So, you know, one thing we're seeing a lot of right now in the JavaScript world is um, adoption of TypeScript. And one of the things that makes uh, that makes difficult is, well, maybe let me back up for a minute and tell people about a little bit of background about one particular technique that a lot of malware likes to use. So one of the worst things about NPM um, right now is that when you go to the NPM website and look up a package, you can't actually see the code that you're about to install at all. I mean, it, it, it's open source, but it's but it's not actually <laughs> open and, and, and easy to, to, to read. Like there's a tab that they have on their website that says explore. And if you click it, it just says coming soon or it says like an error message. It just it just never worked correctly. This this tab has been there for years and it just never worked correctly. So you basically resort to clicking the GitHub link and then going to GitHub and looking at the code there to get an idea. And again, like most people don't even bother to do that. But if you're if you're trying to be security conscious, you're trying to carefully select your dependencies, then that is something that you might do. And the problem with that is there's no guarantee that the code that's on GitHub is the same as the code that's on NPM. So a lot of malware will sneak into an NPM package and the attacker will make sure that the code that's on GitHub doesn't reflect that, doesn't have the malware. And so if you're just relying on on going to the GitHub page and looking there, you're going to miss out on this malware. And so one of the things we'd like to be able to do is to sort of say, well, whenever we see that the code on GitHub doesn't match the code that's on NPM, that's a pretty big red flag, right? That something, something fishy is going on. But what makes this hard is as people adopt things like TypeScript, and honestly, even like th- there's things like CoffeeScript that came before that that had the same problem. It's that you have a source folder, you know, written in TypeScript. But then when you actually, when a maintainer actually publishes this package to NPM, they have to first build the TypeScript and, and, and produce a, a JavaScript artifact. And then that's what's, what actually gets published to NPM. And so that means that basically all TypeScript packages are going to have code that's different on GitHub than is on NPM. And so it makes that signal a lot less useful to us because we, so we, we, we wouldn't want to flag when those are different if it's going to flag every single TypeScript project. So anyway, one of the things that I'm really excited about pushing for that I think would, would be great for security and would also just be great for just kind of like just software quality in general is a reproducible builds. So for those who don't know, the idea of a reproducible build is just that you should be able to build a project and get the same artifact that comes out regardless of who builds it. And that way, if people are relying on your on this compiled artifact, whether it's a binary or whether it's a bit of compiled TypeScript code, they don't need to trust 
the person who compiled it, they don't need to trust that this person's machine was clean, that it didn't have a backdoor on it. They don't need to trust that this person didn't modify the source first before compiling it so that they could sneak in something, right? So with a reproducible build, anyone can go and take the source code, build it, and get the exact same bit-for-bit output as the maintainer would have gotten. And so they can confirm that, that nothing sneaky was added to the result. So if we could have, you know, if we could, we, what we want to do is we want to get to a place where we can actually take a given package, we can run npm install and then npm build, and then look at the resulting output and compare that to what's on npm. And if it matches, then we can say, all right, you know, even though the code is different on GitHub here, we have a really high degree of certainty that, that you know, the, the source there, that, you're, that the human readable source code that anyone can look at is actually reflecting what is published to NPM. And that's great for, that's just great for reliability and for just kind of clean, like cleanliness in terms of um, like, you know, how we write and how we consume software. So that's something I'd love to help push. And I think that's like one thing where we can actually, we can give packages that do this a nice little badge that says that they have reproducible builds. But yeah, there's so many other directions we could go with this. I mean, we have this pipeline now where we can analyze code, all code, all open source code. And so there's so many more things that we want to look for. And we just keep thinking of new, you know, more and more ideas. And, and we're, we're making this, this pipeline more and more like enriched with, with different data as we think of new, like new things to look for. One other one that we're, that we're looking for that's really, really powerful is, is, is detecting typo squatting. So I don't know how much, yeah, I mean, maybe I should define that for people, but basically typo squatting is when someone registers a package with a name that's very similar to a popular package. And they hope that some percentage of people are going to make a typo when they're installing it. And because of how NPM works, where it'll automatically run the install scripts in the package, you can basically make a typo, like a one or two letter typo in a, in a package, and you'll end up installing something, you know, that, that has like, let's say a hundred downloads a month. So no one, you, no one uses this thing, right? So you were about to install something that's extremely popular. You make a one letter mistake and now suddenly you're executing code from, from some random package that no one has ever really even looked at before. And that's really bad. And so, you know, that's an example of another thing where, you know, we, we can detect that really easily. I don't know why the existing tooling doesn't do it. It's something that like the number one supply chain attack vector right now that we're seeing, it's just pervasive and we found an instance of a very very popular library using a typo squat and we had them we had them fix it but they weren't aware that they had this in their in their dependency list and and it was it's just shocking how how common this is so so that's something that we can detect as well and and we can tell you on on the github on the github pull request that the package that you're installing appears to be a typo and just get you to double check that you actually installed the right one so you know, there's so many things like this that you can do if you really start to think about like, like what are common sense things that we should be doing that no one is doing for whatever reason, we can just do those things for people. And that's kind of, that's what, what the socket project is trying to do. Do you take any inspiration from any of the other security companies that you've seen built up over the years? The thing that I think is the most important when it comes to tools like this is that the signal to noise ratio needs to be really high. I think efforts like NPM audit, which started out off with the, the best of intentions, which is basically to, to give everybody access to this vulnerability database and let them know when they're installing stuff that has vulnerabilities. It is a great thing. I'm glad that this feature exists, but it's kind of become so noisy now that a lot of people just ignore it. And so 
I think that's something that's really been on all of our minds is how do we make the stuff that we're telling people actionable and keep the amount of these things low so that people don't start ignoring it. And it's hard because the incentive for a security company is to like make their tool catch as many, like to say that they can catch as many things as possible. And so there's this constant incentive from companies in the space to basically have as many of these known vulnerabilities in their database as possible so that they can say they have the biggest database and they catch the most things. But as they've pushed to do that, you end up with like lower and lower impact vulnerabilities being added to the database. And that means that in fact, whenever you see an alert, like more often than not, it's it's actually fine to ignore it because it's not like a real problem. Like it's it's in some function that's not actually called by you or it's it's in it's it's in a developer dependency so it's never actually going to run on untrusted input from a user or or it's just like pretty low impact but it's rated wrong. So it's rated as severe or high when it's actually a low impact vulnerability. And so that's something that um it's a tough balance to strike, but I think with the stuff we're looking for we're always asking ourselves like is this worth bothering people about? And like, is it worth telling users about it? So I think like, if you take the typo squatting example that I mentioned a minute ago, that's something where like, yes, I guess somebody might really want to install a package that has a hundred downloads a week. Maybe that's really what they intended to install. Like maybe they wrote the package themselves. And so, you know, they know that it's safe and they're just the first person to install it, right? Maybe that's that happens sometimes, but in the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, a package like that, which is one or two letters off from a package with millions of downloads, the vast majority of time, that's going to be a typo. You know, we think it's worth surfacing that you know, in a comment, at least to, to make sure people take a second look at that. And if we get it wrong, sometimes it's not the end of the world. It's just it's just a GitHub comment that you can ignore. So that's that's like an example of like one where I think it's a really high signal to noise. And so it's a no brainer. I just think that's that's probably the number one thing that I, I think we take from other tools is is is, is um, it's important to make this stuff high signal to noise. Well, as we begin to draw to a close, is there anything you'd like to add about Socket that we haven't covered? Well, I guess I'll mention one kind of cool thing that one cool feature that we have on our website in case people are interested. There's a page if you go to our footer, if you go to socket.dev and you go to the footer, there's a link that says removed packages. And it's it's pretty interesting if, if for people who've been listening so far and they're kind of interested in in what what we've been talking about and they're curious to see what actual malware looks like in these packages that this is a great resource. So what we're doing is we're, like I mentioned, we're, we're, we're kind of watching NPM and anytime a package is published, we are automatically kind of downloading it and running our analysis on it. And one of the kind of cool side effects of that is obviously when we find malware, we tell, it to, we tell NPM about it and we try to get it taken down. But also when others find things and report it to NPM, it, it, it also gets, you know, it could, it could get taken down for, for, for many reasons. Maybe NPM itself even finds, finds it and takes it down. But what's interesting is that then we can actually see that that's happened and then we can flag that. And if you go to this page on our site, we have a listing of all the packages that have been removed and you can click and see exactly like what code was in those packages. And so it's really informative and interesting to see kind of what malware is out there and what it does. So if you click around, you'll find a whole bunch of interesting stuff on there. Like one example is there's a lot of packages that have names that have company names in the package name. And, you know, you'll see things like, you know, Yahoo dash react dash input 
or things like, you know, Wix dash chat dash backend. So it's like a company name dash some some component in their system. And you can click on that and see exactly what, what code is in there. But like the actual attack that's happened here that's that, that's going on and why, why this package was taken down is because that was a dependency confusion attack, which is a an attack where basically a company has an internal NPM registry that they use to publish private packages that they don't want to share with everybody. And what, what can happen is if an attacker knows the name of one of those packages, they can go to the public NPM registry and publish a package with the same name. And then if the internal tools in the company don't install packages correctly and they prioritize the public version instead of the private version, then that's how an attacker can actually get code into the into the supply chain of this company. It's basically they confuse the tools and they install the public for the tools install the public version instead of the private version of the package. And so if you look at this remove packages list on socket.dev, you'll see just a ton of this kind of stuff where all these companies, these attackers are trying to basically trick companies into, into installing their code. And it's pre- it's just pretty wild to look at. And it's also just, it's just really interesting to see kind of the, the attack code and what it does and like what exactly are they doing? You'll find some stuff where they're just clearly stealing the environment variables and sending them to some IP address, but you'll also find stuff where the entire file is just completely obfuscated and it's a bunch of like hex numbers in an array, you know, that gets evaled or something like that. It's really kind of, there's really wild, wild stuff in there. So yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's an interesting resource that people should check out if they're, if they're at all curious about what does an actual malware package look like? Awesome. Well, Ferris, it's been a a real pleasure talking to you once again. It's impressive to see you launch a company and I wish you the best of luck with it. I appreciate it. That's really kind of you. And it's awesome to be able to come on here and to share it with you and and to be coming back to to the show where I I launched my my first open source project, uh, WebTorrent, all those years ago. (laughs) So yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. Thank you.